points as I get to continue, and we're going to continue on in this particular section, uh, Hebrews 12, as the author is beginning to kind of kind of land the plane. He's beginning to kind of land the plane in his message. If if this if we consider this to be a sermon, which we believe that it is, then this is kind of the final points that he makes. The author's making Hebrews 12 verses. Well, verses um, 18 through 24. Hear this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure, endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we come to this passage this morning. The, as I mentioned, the, the author is, is drawing together his conclusion and he's tying up, if you will, a, a variety of threads and strands that he has been pointed, he's been making throughout his message. And he ties them up at this point in this section and the next section as he begins to land the plane. This indeed is the, the as some would say, the rhetorical high point. But the author is saying, I want you to, to get my message. And he uses a couple of symbols here to help them to understand what he is, what he's been saying all along. And of course, the clear theme throughout from beginning to end of this message from the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Christ. It's the greatness of who Jesus is and what he came to do. That his greatness is the basis, is the foundation of his mediatorial role for us. To do for us and to be for us what we couldn't be for ourselves. And thus he has opened up a new and a living way that gives us access to God. Excuse me, I'm going to get rid of this here. It's kind of annoying me. So he's given us access to God. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's the great high priest. He didn't have to offer sacrifice for his own sins before he addressed the sins of people. He is the guarantor of a new covenant. It's built upon new and better promises through what he has done, what he has accomplished. And as a result, what we get is a cleansed conscience. That we have forgiveness of sins. That it goes beyond just the merely external ceremonial cleansing. It goes to the very core of our being, to our heart. He has provided a way that we can be forgiven. And as one wraps their minds and their hearts around this reality, this truth of who Christ is, it enables one to stand firm in that faith. Especially in the midst of difficulties, of persecutions, of afflictions, of hardships in life, as they come, as they understand who Christ is, they understand what He has done and what He's accomplished, it enables them to stand firm on that truth. And to draw near to God as opposed to be driven away from Him. Of course, many who were 
he, were, he was writing to, they were experiencing these kinds of afflictions and difficulties, and they were being tempted to move away from their profession of faith, to drift away. He warns them against sluggishness, against leaving or being drawn away from the living God, against being... Uh, against backsliding or shrinking back. And so he says, engage the life of faith with diligence and perseverance. And remember the one who is the perfecter of faith. Look to him who is the pioneer and the perfecter of your faith. And as he comes to this point, he has a central image that he wants to tie all of his themes together in. A central image in the image is a mountain. In fact, it's an image of two mountains that are set in relationship to one another. And we see the contrast here. And there's a key verb that starts off each of these sections. The beginning section in verse 8 and then 22. And the, the key verb is to come. You have not come to the first mountain, but you have come to Mount Zion. And that, that verb carries a lot of meaning and significance, a couple different nuances that will be helpful for us as he's writing to them. He wants them to know this, this word carries this picture of a journey. It's a journey that you have not journeyed to the first, but the second. You have, there's a journey, there's a process of moving. You have come to this mountain. And the second is an approach to God. These mountains represent the very presence of God. It represents the way that one would relate to God. In fact, it relates, it reveals to us a couple different ways that are opposite and against one another of approaching God. And they represent the ways that we approach God. And so these mountains become key figures or symbols for the author to tie together all that he's intended to say. And indeed, he is contrasting the old with the new. The old covenant with the new covenant. And they're being pictured by these two mountains. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Now, mountains play an important theme throughout all of Scripture from beginning to end. And of course, I love that theme. I love hiking in the mountains. I love climbing mountains. I love lots of things related to them. And so, so that you know I'm not making this stuff up. I want to just trace, just real quick. This is the, the, the kind of the arc of redemption is, is dotted with mountains from beginning to end. The, the narrative of God's redemption have mountains from beginning to end dotted all along that narrative, that story. We start in Eden. And you go to Eden, you see it's on a mountain. It's symbolized by the, we see the presence of God there. You can go to Mount Sinai, we're talking about here. You can go to the mountain where Abraham offered Isaac. You can go to Mount Zion, which is being described here. We can go to Mount Carmel. We can go to Mount Calvary. And if you read all the way through the end of Scripture to Revelation, you see that there's a new mountain that comes down out of heaven. It comes down to earth and establishes the rule and reign of God in the new heavens and the new earth at that point in time. And in case you don't believe what I said, you can talk to Ryan Randolph. Ryan is doing his old master's thesis on mountain theology. Not Rand Randolph, my, Ryan Mayo. On, you're standing right there. So, so uh, on, on mountain theology. And so mountains have this important theme in Scripture. And of course, the way that they would have understood mountains would have, would have been helpful. It was helpful for us. The way that the, the world was structured for, for them is that if you think about it, the skies and the heavens is where God dwells. The earth is where man dwells and the underworld is where the dead would dwell. And those high points on the earth 
would be the, the, the logical place that you would go to meet God. The way where the, the veil between man and God is thinnest on the mountains that's there. And we see that the pagan rituals would practice, be practiced on the mountaintops and the high places. They would establish those places in an attempt to bring the God down to somehow appease him and to bring him down and to gain from him what they want, to kind of, you know, leverage him into helping them. But the Israelite God approaches this in a little bit different way. And God seems to accommodate on their understanding of the, the, the way that the world was made. And he uses a mountain as a symbol of his presence. And throughout the scriptures, we see God showing up. And when he shows up, he shows up on these mountains. The Lord Yahweh says... This is a this is a symbol and the author uses the two prominent mountains of the Old Testament of the old system. And we see Mount Zion and Mount Sinai there. And each of these represent a journey, a journey of the Christian. And they represent two different approaches to God, two ways to access him, to approach his presence, one that leads to life and one that leads to death. And the author sets them In contrast to one another. And so what I want to do this week. I want to do this next week. I have a couple of opportunities to look at this passage. I want to look at these two mountains. And I want to ask a a very simple question. What's the climate like on each of these mountains? Not the physical climate. What's the relational climate like? What's it look like? What does it feel like? To relate to God in relation to each of these mountains, in relation to each of these approaches to God. One that's built upon our own terms, on our own ability, our own reliance, and one that's established by his means and what he has provided. What does it look like? What does it feel like to relate to him, to be with this God between these two opposite extremes and then understand the way that they relate to one another because there is a relationship between each that indeed the Christian's journey will involve both of these mountains both Mount Sinai and Zion this week we're going to focus on Mount Sinai the experience and the approach of God through the old covenant system the author says he gives us a description of what it looks like there As we see the darkness and the heaviness and the gloom and the hopelessness of Mount Sinai, we're enabled to see the beauty and the brightness of what God has done in and upon Mount Zion. And I got to tell you, I'm going to leave us hanging just a little bit when I realized this was two sermons, not one. So this this day, we're going to focus more on the first half, the heaviness of Mount Sinai, the restlessness, the The place there where it seems so futile. And next week we'll focus on what God has done in the new covenant. But we're going to touch both. But that's where we're going to go. And we're going to learn about how we approach God. So these two mountains first. We see the author says you have not come to this first one, right? We see this picture, this description that's here that's that's clearly about Mount Sinai. And historically Mount Sinai was that place. I read about it earlier in Exodus chapter 19 where God brought Israel from slavery right out of Egypt, he brought them to himself there. And there he showed himself. He, he showed up on Mount Sinai. His presence came down and it rested on Mount Sinai. And they were to relate to God in that way. And so it was a, a real physical place. It was the place of the giving of the law. It was a place where his covenant with them was established. That was there. It was a place, as I described 
earlier, as we've read, the fire and darkness and gloom that's there. It's also called Mount or Horeb, you find in Scripture. And you see that this represents for the author the structure of the Old Covenant. It, 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 it provides for him this picture, this representation of how one would approach God through the old system. Through the systems that were put in place, the sacrificial system and the Levitical system and the priesthood that was there. It was mediated through those terms. And that's for the author says that's the old. And he's talked about that all along. But then he contrasted to Mount Zion. And Mount Zion historically was the place in which Jerusalem, the hill upon Jerusalem was built. Particularly the palace and the temple would be considered this jurisdiction, this place of Mount Zion where God dwells. And we see there in the palace is the throne where his king rules. And we see that in the temple, the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and we see, we see both the presence and the power and the authority of God represented in Zion there. Physical Zion represented a heavenly Zion. It, it was patterned after the, the place where God dwelled in the heavens, where he ruled and where he reigned, where it was where Christ eventually, he would take his place at the right hand of the Father and rule there in the line of David. And so looking forward in time as well, we have this great promise that the restored, glorified Zion would come in the new heavens and new earth. And we have this great hope looking down the road. So Mount Zion for this particular pastor as he preaches, um, it is the representation of the new covenant. It's a, it's a way that one approaches God on his terms, through his mediator, through Jesus Christ, the perfect and complete mediator who enters into the very presence of God with his own perfect blood sacrificed for the sins of sinners. And so the author, he sets them side by side and they're, they're divided in two here. And, and a simple observation will show that there's seven descriptions that describe Mount Sinai and there's seven descriptions of Mount Zion. And they're equal and opposite each other. Sinai is described in this darkness and gloom and distance and heaviness and separation. Zion is described exactly opposite of that. And next week we'll talk more about that. As we read these descriptions, especially of Sinai, it's important for us to see, to read them existentially. What I mean by that is to read them by way of experience, not just kind of natural phenomena, But what do they tell us about our relationship with God? How do they describe the the way one relates to God in and through this approach to God? Through the old covenant. What's it feel like to approach God on these terms? So what's the relational climate on Mount Sinai? And just looking at this passage, I've mentioned it a couple times, but you see that you have not come to what may be touched Okay, note, by the way, the senses that are employed. Okay, that's why I say we need to read this existentially. What would it have felt like? It says, you haven't come to what could be touched. You couldn't come near. The passage I read early in Exodus 19, it says they had to put up kind of barriers to keep the people from breaking through, to keep them from that. So you can't even touch it lest you die. And he goes on to say the sound of, and then the blazing fire and darkness and gloom 
in a tempest. So what did they see? What was there? In the passage I read from Exodus chapter 19, we see there was the, the smoke of that of a kiln. That as God comes and rests on Sinai, on this mountain, as his presence comes, everything starts to kind of come apart. And there's fire and there's smoke and there's a tempest. As the very unmitigated presence of God comes down and shows up in creation, this is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. The very holiness of God. The heaviness and gravity of God's presence as it comes. It says there's a tempest. Right? There's a violence that happens in creation and nature when God shows up. And there's wind and the earth shook as God shows up on the mountain. The people watched and they heard and they stood in terror as the God who had delivered them brings into this place only to live in terror and distance from him. This tempest shook the earth and then there was a sound. They touched, they could smell, they could see, and then they could hear. And we have a couple of different things. One is a trumpet blast. They heard a trumpet blast. And if you think about a trumpet, there's a number of sounds that a trumpet might make. This one is an ominous sound. It's a warning call. It's a proclamation of the presence of God, the the Lord of hosts when he shows up, but it's to get their attention. It's to, a call to be aware of his presence. The Lord is in his temple. The Lord of hosts is coming and is coming near man. Be aware. Be careful. Hear this trumpet. In the, in the Exodus passage, it describes the trumpet got louder and it got louder and it got louder. To get their attention. You can just imagine it piercing their ears and their hearts as they begin to tremble at the very presence of God. And then what did they hear? They heard a voice. They heard a voice. And it says that voice came from God, from the mountain, from the fire and from the smoke. They heard the voice of God and they trembled at the voice. Such that they said... I can't, we can't hear this voice anymore. And they asked for a mediator. They said, Moses, will you be God's mediator? Would you be his mouthpiece? Because this voice is so frightening for us. We can't handle it. We can't stand it. It is so fearful. And so God says, yes. But what was it about that voice? Might be a number of things, the power of it. But what we know, it was a disembodied voice. There there wasn't a, a person attached to it. There was just... This presence of God in all of these phenomenon. It was disembodied. And it spoke and they were afraid. And then even Moses, the mediator, right? The one who's going to be the spokesperson, the one who has led them, says, I tremble with fear when I come into the presence of God when he shows up. And the author says, I want you to see this description of approaching God on these terms in the Old Covenant. See this description, this description, the relational climate of Sinai is not good. It is one of distance. Now we might ask the question, is there grace present in this old covenant? In this way we approach God, we might say, yeah, there's grace here, right? There's a kind of grace because there's a warning. And the warning is don't, don't, don't come too close. The, the grace is we're going to put up barriers to keep you from coming too close to this God. The grace is seen as, okay, I'll give you a mediator and Moses will speak. But this, even this mediator is trembling with fear. And the grace comes in laws and regulations. But you see, it's a grace of protection. 
It's a grace to protect them from who this God is, to protect them from the holiness of this God. It's a grace of protection. It's not a grace of intimacy. It's a grace that protects them, that keeps them at a distance for their own well-being. And so we see in Sinai, in spite of this grace, that it's filled with fear and with terror, and rightly so before a a, a holy God. And so we see the language here is an imagery that we have. It emphasizes the distance, the infinite distance between God and man. And even though they've come geographically close, the distance is... Uh, is unreachable. It, it, it's, it's significant. It's, it's great. And the air is charged with the holiness of God. And they have a right to tremble. One author wrote about this. He says the images of Sinai communicate the relational inadequacies. Indeed, the terrible inapproachability of God based upon the old covenant. It emphasizes the distance. It emphasizes separation. It emphasizes how much we have far we are apart so that we can see that. Inherent in the Old Covenant, inherent in these images of, of Mount Sinai, is represented this distance and separation such that objects and people and other systems must be put in place to mediate that distance. To mediate the holiness of God and the presence of God and the presence of in impurity and sin, of sinful man. And so the author argues, he's argued this all along, that the Old Covenant is an inadequate. It's not sufficient. It was provisional. And it was has become obsolete because of Christ. And this insufficiency where they see and experience, if one approaches God on these terms, it's a climate that leads to separation. And yet, this still gracious old covenant represents something for us. It's helpful. It was representing for them and it represents for us. It represents man's best attempt to reach God. It represents a picture of our best attempt to reach God on our own. Through the things that we can bring to the table. Through our own efforts. Through our own merit. Even by following God's law. It represents that. But that that attempt is futile. That that attempt is not sufficient. That we will not get there. And so the author says to them. For the one who approaches God on these terms. This is what the relational air feels like. This is what it's filled with. It's filled with fear. As we approach this God. It's tireless effort. It's filled with constant consciousness of sin. Living with a guilty conscience. No rest. No freedom. Living enslaved to a contract that's impossible to fulfill. Living constantly knowing that it's impossible to approach God in these terms and yet trying. It's living as a slave, not as a son. And so the warning of the author here, inherent in in Sinai, is beware of the air on this mountain. It will enslave you. It will destroy you. This mountain only offers a shadow of God's redemptive intentions, not the substance. It's only a part of what God intended. It was a step along the way, but not the whole of it that's there. If you return to Sinai, if you return to slavery, the system that's been made obsolete by Christ in the new covenant. He says that's what the air of Sinai feels like. Distance, separation, fear, restlessness. And so he says, but you have not come to there. In verse 22, there's this beautiful shift. The author 
warns them. He says, be aware though. No, he says, but you've come to Zion. In verse 22, he says, but you've come here. There's a hopefulness that in his words, you've come to this. You haven't come to Sinai. You've breathed the free air of Zion. You have experienced a cleansed conscience. You've experienced what it means to enter into the very presence of God with confidence and boldness. To come near to Him and not have to stand at a distance. Not to have to stand outside of His presence, but to come into His presence. The same God of Sinai, yet now mediated by God in the flesh. You've tasted this. But beware lest you drift away. Beware lest you find yourself gravitating back to the climate, to the air of Sinai. And the author says, just as the brilliance and the beauty of a diamond is seen more profoundly as it's set against the blackness, so the Mount Zion, so the covenant that God has established in Christ, the beauty of it is seen as it's set against the backdrop of Sinai. We see the beauty and the greatness of what God has done in Christ as it's set against the blackness and the darkness and the restlessness and the hopelessness of trying to do it on our own. Of trying to approach God with our own efforts. And the, and the author sets them in relationship. He says, I want you to see Sinai, but I want you to see the beauty of what God has done with this at the backdrop. Paul's imagery for this, he uses slavery and sonship as these pictures that slavery is the picture of the the law the stipulations of the old covenant and he says but we have become sons he says you know what we appreciate sonship as as we've experienced slavery we appreciate the beauty of sonship and intimacy with god as we have tasted the slavery of trying to do it ourselves and he, he gives us this picture of God's intentions of where we go. But the Christian's journey to pass to Zion must pass through Sinai. The author reminds us that he has called us to Zion, and that's true. He's made a way opened up to enter into the very presence of God. But the, just as the drama of redemption, God's story, we see that Sinai is prerequisite, that it precedes Zion. So in our lives, we must pass through one to get to the other. That Sinai is prerequisite to it. Now, the relationship of the two mountains of of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is is tricky business sometimes. To to understand how is it and what was God doing in Mount Sinai? And what was he doing on Mount Zion? What was he doing in the Old? And what is he doing in the New? And then how do they relate to one another? What's the connection there? And some mistakenly think that, well, the Old Covenant was a failure. And so God came up with a new plan. That plan A just didn't quite work. And so God said, okay, we'll try plan B. And that's just not the truth. And others will mistakenly also keep them completely apart, antithetical of each other. There's no connection. But the fact is there's a relationship between the two that one precedes and lays the foundation for the other. That scripture tells us, however else they might relate, that the one precedes and lays the foundation for us. Paul uses the language in Galatians, this, this picture of, of a tutor that leads, that the, the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ, to lead us to faith in Christ. What he means is that there's a severity that the law brings. There's a severity and there's a futility that trying to approach God on our own terms that that brings, that prepares us for faith in Christ. 
as we find we can't do it on our own, as we find it's futile to please God, even to follow the perfect law that God's given us, it brings us to the end of ourselves. And that futility is purposeful in our own lives. It's purposeful to bring us to a point of faith in Christ. See, the climate of Sinai approaching a relationship with God on these terms will ultimately bring us to our knees. It demonstrates that our best attempts are futile. And if we really think we can approach God on our terms, if we really think that we can satisfy his requirements of the law, if we really think that we can please him and meet the conditions of the old covenant, then one of two outcomes will be for us. One will be pride and the other is despair. And neither one will lead us exactly where we're meant to go. But, but failure and futility helps us to see and to lead us ultimately to faith in Christ. As we pass to there, if we really think we can do that. The old covenant, we might say, was a successful failure. It was successful failure. It was intended to fail. To bring us to that point. To bring us to our own necessary failure of ourselves and our abilities even to follow God's perfect law. See, God has done what the law couldn't do, weakened by the flesh, by sending his own son for us, as the Romans 8 passage. And it brings us through failure and despair and futility and leads us to the faithful one. And so the Christian's journey to Mount Zion must pass through Mount Sinai, through our own efforts, or what we think we can do to despair and futility, to the place where his mediator will stand in for us. Where Jesus, God with in flesh and bone comes and lays his own life down for us. But Sinai is a point on that pass on that journey to it. This last fall in our hiking trip, we we experienced, some of us did, something called a false peak on a on a hike. If you ever had a false peak, it's very demoralizing. And if you're hiking to a particular summit, as you're going, there's a particular you come up to a, a place that looks like you've arrived. And it looks like that you're there, only to find when you get there that you're still a long way to go. And as and, and you can imagine, it has its own kind of effect. If you've hiked so long and so far, and you get to that false peak, and you look up and you go, Oh my goodness, we've got a long way to go. Now the destination is there, it's not here. It's not this place, but we have to pass through one to get to the other. And so there can be confusion, there can be this kind of despair at that moment. But to keep our eyes fixed on not where we are, but where we are intended to go is important. However, this is really important for the Christian's journey. It's really important and it was helpful for some of us who knew, who knew on that hike there were two false peaks. There were two of them that we had passed through. That we would come to that point and we thought we would be finished, but we weren't. And the author says, guess what? Sinai is a false peak to your final destinations. Don't stay there. Don't return to there. That's not where you're going. You're to go further up and further in. This isn't where life is found. Life is found moving up, further up and further in to the very presence of God. We must be brought to an end of ourselves to come to see that our best efforts are futile. Experiencing the relational climate of Sinai, of the old covenant, causes us to long for more. As we find ourselves restless, on that treadmill of human effort, trying to earn our keep in God's family, it makes us hungry and thirsty for something more, the very presence of God. Now, if only learning this were a one-time event, 
If only we just realize that, okay, trust in Christ and what he has done, done. That's the problem, right? This is an ongoing lifetime journey. There's a one point in time where we go, there's one person ultimately to trust. The rest of our life is brought in line with that reality as he brings that out in us. This is a lifetime process, an ongoing process, a journey as we move towards complete trust in him. And that's why the author warns them. That's why he's warning them and cautioning them not to return to there. Don't go there. Don't live in that place. His concern is that in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their suffering, that they would become confused. They would be tempted to leave the air of Zion and return to an old way of approaching God. That's built upon self-effort. It's built upon self-reliance. It's built upon what I can do and not on what Christ has done. And that's the challenge. That's the journey of the Christian. And he says, you have not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Zion. Remember that. Don't return to that air. Now the question, as I finish, I don't even know what time, I can't even tell what time our time slots off here. Um, as I land the plane on this, the question is, why is it that one would return, return from Zion, from what Christ has done to Sinai? Why is it that we would return to self-effort and self-reliance in our approach before God? There's maybe a, a number of reasons. I know embedded in all of that is our own human nature. That our human nature wants to be able to, to claim things for ourselves. But I think inherent in that, a part of that human nature is is control, that we desire to be in control. And I think in the midst, is this is a familiar theme for the author, and certainly to some degree for us, that in the midst of pain and affliction and suffering, that that plays a significant role for us in disorienting us, in knowing our direction. And it makes us, puts us in compromising positions, bargaining positions in the midst of difficulties, and what's interesting about the old covenant and structures that the law and the ceremonies had the appearance of control. It had the, the appearance that, that you could control God. You could leverage Him. If I do X, He's bound to do Y. It had this picture. And so returning to Sinai had a sense of control over God. And so that's why one would be tempted to turn back. To be able to control their outcome. Their relationship becomes contractual. And those who desire control more than anything else will exchange relationship for control. And the relationship is changed at its core. It becomes a contract that's there. And so we can suddenly fall into the same mentality, a quid pro quo kind of relationship. If I do this, he does this. And we want to leverage God. We want to, if it were possible, to control him, presume upon him. If I do X, he's bound to do Y. And what happens in our lives as we return back to the air of Sinai is that it sucks the life out of the relationship. The intimacy goes away, dissipates our joy. In fact, that's what Paul says in Galatians. He says, where is your joy? As the Galatians were returning to this legalism, says, is the exchange intimacy for this relationship with God. Spiritual life is sucked down and as we exchange a relationship with the living God, with the breathing God, who, by the way, isn't safe, but he's good. 
the one who leads our way through Mount Sinai up to Mount Zion. For a relationship with him, a desire to approach him on our terms, our efforts, which has lived in fear and restlessness, comparison, an endless treadmill of human effort, and ultimately distance from God. Separation from him, fear of him, and not intimacy. That's what the air of Sinai leads us. That's where it takes us. And to experience this vital relationship with the living God, this is what needs to happen. Remember, he is living, and next week we're going to talk more about what it means that he is living, because that's a key word throughout the, the message of Hebrews. To live with a living God means that we need to submit to him. It means that we have to give up control. It means that we need to trust him in everything. It's not a safe thing, but it's a good thing. To live there. And so as we bow the knee before him, this living God, there in that place, we taste what the life of Zion is really about. Living in his presence, under his care and his control. Ultimately trusting him. Not distance. Not despair. Not hopelessness. Not fire and smoke and gloom. But the brightness of the gospel. What it offers to us. And the author, as he sets the backdrop or the relationship of the backdrop of the old covenant and the new, the beauty of it. And he says, well, we must pass through one to get to the other and don't return to it. He says, but you have come. The hope is that as we have tasted that, that we can never be drawn away. Ultimately, from the taste in the air of Zion, of what it means to live in freedom and relationship with God, what it means to live in closeness and nearness and intimacy with him. To live with this God who has flesh on. The one who came as a mediator of the new covenant. Who calls us further up and further in. Beyond the enslaving air of Mount Sinai. Into the very presence of God. That's what he calls us to. And My prayer for us. For me that this, this year. That we would live in this reality. Of his presence. Experiencing the great wonder. Those sinful and guilty finite creatures that we would have the awesome privilege of living near to this God. And if it were even greater to understand that this God indwells us as his people. As we gather, as we go out, this great hope. And indeed we have come to the mountain that he has established. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this great truth. Thanks you've called us further up and further in into the life the nearness and the greatness of Christ. Thanks that he is our mediator. Father, this morning I pray that you would enable us to relinquish control of our lives to you. That we would bow the knee and though in no matter what circumstances we might find ourselves, as much as we want to leverage you, that we would be leveraged by you. That we would bow our knee before you and allow you as a living God, to live and dwell in us, in our circumstances or situations. Father, as we think of the last year and we think of the new year, some of us enter it with great fear, with great sorrow, wondering what this new year might hope, might be filled with. Father, would you give us your eyes to see, help us to walk through the the darkness, the the hardness, the difficulties, the loss of this last year into this year where you rule and reign. Father, we're we're thankful. Just thinking of this baptism here of little Nico and the, the reminder of your grace that's present. And I 
think of all of our kids, and I pray, Father, that your grace would be upon them and us, on the parents as they raise them and as the community as we love them. And with that, I think of Kelvin and Caitlin uh, and their wedding yesterday. And, uh, and, and that now, as husband and wife, we pray that you would bless uh, that marriage. And, Father, that we as your people today, as we go out in this new year, that we would be able to, to walk, journey, um, and the new life that you provided for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Remind you that uh, elders will be up front to, to pray. And so if you have need of anything, please come and join them. And, and they will be glad to meet you and join with you there. The benediction this morning comes from Numbers. From the Old Testament of all places where we see... An incredible blessing that God gives. It's this thread, it's this strand of what he intends to do. This great grace of closeness and nearness in this blessing that he gives in the Old Testament. He fulfills in the new. So receive this as his blessing for us, his people, this day in this new year. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace in the name of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.